most mornings, I wake up to the sound of preaching. Very often, it's great preaching. I have my radio tuned to WBCI, and when my alarm goes off at about 5.15 a.m., it's usually the voice of someone like Mike Fabares, or if I hit the snooze button, I'm awakened by the preaching of Philip DeCourcy. It's not a bad thing to be awakened by the Word of God, is it? A few weeks ago, my heart and my mind, believe it or not, in my half-slumber state, tuned into something that really made an impact on me. It so arrested me that I had to write it, jot down what words I could remember and then later check it out online so that I could uh, write the rest of it down. And it's something that Philip DeCourcy said in one of his messages. He said during the inauguration of President Obama, he was watching Fox News. And they were discussing the legacy of George Bush at the time. And he was very unpopular at the time, but he had hoped that history would be kinder. That people would look back and see how he had brought safety and security to the homeland. And Britt Hume, one of the Fox commentators, pitched in and he said this. He said, that's what Bush's legacy is going to be. That's what he's hoping historians will look at him with some greater fairness. No domestic terrorism since 9-11. And then he quoted something I was struck by. And I wrote it down that day, De Corsi said. He said that President Bush once said this to Britt Hume. On the 12th of September, everybody went back to their normal lives, but I did not. There are moments in history when life is changed irrevocably. When you can't go back to your normal lives. We think of days like Pearl Harbor. We think of days like September 11th. And in Jonah chapter 3, we encounter such a day. The day that Jonah finally obeyed God and went to that great city of Nineveh and preached a message that literally changed the entire nation. It was a day of great spiritual awakening. And you can't go back to your normal life after the day that Christ gets hold of your soul. That's true whether you are speaking about Jonah after being delivered from the great fish or Nineveh being spared from God's wrath or you and I being moved by God's word. Amen? Let's take a moment and pray before we dig into this word. Heavenly Father, those last lines in that last song really moved me about the fact that we've been spared from wrath. That the wrath that you have against sin was poured out brutally on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that he's taken the brunt of it for us. And as we've celebrated communion and we've remembered that incredible, horrendous sacrifice that he made, we also come forth out of that, Lord God, with a sense of joy, knowing that the grave didn't hold you, that you burst forth and came out of it. And that we who have placed our faith and trust in you Share in that eternal life as a gift of grace. Open our eyes, Lord God, to the hope of that today. And let us see how that all transpires in the life of people when the gospel gets hold of their soul. And may we make the necessary applications, Lord God, and walk out of here changed. 
For I ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Now, most messages on Jonah chapter 3 include their, in their titles the idea of a great revival coming to the great city of Nineveh. The only problem with that is the fact that the concept of revival is described and defined by words like comeback, reestablishment, reintroduction, restoration, reappearance, resurrection, regeneration, rejuvenation. You get the picture of what I'm talking about? In other words, it's based on the fact that something was there to begin with and it's being revived, right? By definition, it had to have been vived already, so to speak. One definition states that revival refers to a renewed interest after indifference or decline. That is not the case with Nineveh. Not spiritually speaking. The people of Nineveh were Gentiles. They were pagans. And as far as we can tell, they had no personal or intimate or spiritual relationship whatsoever with the one true God that Jonah knew, Yahweh. In fact, they worshipped a host of other gods, fish gods and goddesses. As Assyrians, the people of Nineveh worshipped Dagon and his female counterpart, the fish goddess Nanshi. Archaeological discoveries of fish god sculptures have been made in Nineveh. According to ancient mythology, Dagon was the father of Baal. He was the fish god represented as half man and half fish. This image furthered an evolutionary belief in both men that both men and fish had evolved together from the primal waters. The Assyrians worshipped all kinds of other gods. Asher, an Eastern Semitic god, and the head of the Assyrian pantheon and protector of the city. They worshiped the goddesses and gods of love and war and fertility and sex. But there was no indication whatsoever that they ever worshiped Jonah's god. Sounds like a page out of today's culture. Nineveh didn't need a revival. They needed a great spiritual awakening. And that's precisely what they got. It it was Jonah who needed the revival. And that's exactly what he got in the belly of the fish. As we saw last week. To be honest, in the event of any large-scale spiritual work of God, of such as what happened to Nineveh and even throughout the world at various times in history, both of those things are vital factors and they usually occur simultaneously. That's why I have entitled this message, Second Chances, New Beginnings, because Jonah got a second chance and Nineveh got a new start. The truth of the matter is, and I sincerely believe this with all my heart, and I think scripture as well as history bears this out, is that when the people of God are revived, the nation is awakened. Let me say that again. When the people of God are revived, the nation is awakened. In other words, I'm convinced that spiritually, a national awakening will only take place when personal revival begins to take root. And it starts right here. 
That's the meaning of the motto of one of the Welsh revivals that said, bend the church, save the people. Bend the church, save the people. Here's the question. Will you and I be bent and broken for God's service? The principle is pretty clear. When the people of God do the will of God, the fruit of God brings the glory of God. And that's the message of Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 outlines the anatomy of a nation's spiritual awakening. And in this case, it followed a five-stage process that I've kind of drawn out from the text. Let's look at it. The first stage, the grace of God comes. The grace of God comes. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2 to begin with, picking up the story. When God's... um, Chapter 2. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. So last week, we left off on the fact that he's in the fish, he's praying to God, he's experiencing all this newfound uh, attention toward God, and he ends the prayer with the name of Jesus. Salvation is from the Lord. Now we pick it up. The Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. As we saw last week, this great fish was God's providence for Jonah's deliverance. Somehow, in the belly of the great fish, this prodigal prophet Jonah came to his senses. He realized that salvation is from the Lord. And I think Jonah's a little more in tune with God at this point, don't you think? He knows that it's only by God's sovereign grace that he is where he is. But now what? What's next for him? Well, it's kind of given to us here. It's kind of comical in a way when you read it in verse 10. Jonah has this birthing to undergo, so to speak. And it's not going to be pretty. And it's not going to be perfumed either. Like any birthing experience, it's not as airbrushed as some magazines might portray it to be. If you've ever been in a room while your wife gives birth... It's quite, well, let's just say that there's a lot of fluids present. And the baby's quite saturated with them. Imagine Jonah. Imagine Jonah in light of verse 10 of chapter 2. The Lord commands the fish. And literally, the original Hebrew language says, he spoke to the fish. God spoke to the fish and he's vomited up on dry land. Uh, do, and uh, you know what happens? It happens on the third day. Isn't that interesting? Do a study sometime on what happens in the Bible on the third day. The Old Testament's filled with third day stories. Abraham seeing the ram delivering Isaac from certain death. Rahab helping the spies escape. Esther bringing her risky request to King Ahasuerus, which ultimately leads to the Jews' deliverance. Etc., etc., etc. Amazing things take place on the third day in the Bible, according to the scriptures, the greatest of which, and the one to which this one points, is Christ's emerging from the grave, fully alive, and securing deliverance from eternal death for all those who place their faith in Jesus. It was on the third day that Jonah was vomited up on the dry land. Now, think about this. Couldn't God have said it in a more favorable light? Don't you think he could have used a more churchier word than vomit? 
No. God superintended this. And he used the word vomit. Graphic imagery in the original language, by the way. In the words of one author, the writer wants to make sure that the reader gets this. Jonah did not get dropped off by an angel. (laughs) The whale had a protein spill, tossed his cookies, lost his lunch, launched the food shuttle, took a ride on the regurgitron, (laughs) according to Ray Pritchard. Jonah ends up on the shore, not a tragic figure covered with suffering, not a heroic figure covered with glory, a ridiculous figure covered with shrimp cocktail and tuna tartare. Sometimes God's deliverance is a messy affair, isn't it? Sometimes it comes after a whale of an experience. I know, it's sick. Just seeing if you're still awake. This was Jonah's testimony, and this book is is a written account of Jonah's testimony. It's his testimony. And if you've been a prodigal at all on the run from God, it may be your testimony. As I've said before, God doesn't waste pain, does he? He won't waste yours. So when the grace of God comes... Honor it. Honor it. No matter what it looks like. It's often part of your revival process, which may lead to a spiritual awakening for somebody else when you give them your testimony. What a sight he must have been on that shore. And you know what? He's still not in Nineveh. That fish didn't drop him off in Nineveh because Nineveh's inland. It's not on the coast. He has a long journey to get to where he's going. But Jonah now has a whole new understanding of God's grace and the God who gives it. I've read that in the architecture of some Bohemian churches, there are pulpits built to resemble a whale's open mouth sticks out over the congregation. I've seen pictures of them. They're called whale pulpits. And they are accessible only by climbing up through the fish's body by a staircase, thereby symbolizing the fact that the preacher cannot proclaim the word of God except from the mouth of God's deliverance. That's true, isn't it? God still has something more for Jonah. And the first stage of any spiritual awakening is that the grace of God comes. Stage number two, the word of God comes. Calls The word of God calls. Look at verse chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Let's just stop right there. Jonah got a second chance. As I said in the first message, Jonah is the only prophet that we know of who receives the same call of God twice. Twice. God is a God of second chances. Amen? But I want you to know something. He doesn't always give you a second chance. 
Not everyone in the Bible who disobeyed God got a second chance. Can you say King Saul? Can you say Lot's wife? How about Ananias and Sapphira? See, you don't go getting off on this thing where God is the God of second chances and you can presume upon that and you think that, oh, well, I'll just, uh, I'll come to my senses at some point and God will be gracious and give me a second chance. He doesn't always do that. Again, this is an example of God's sovereign grace and no one, no one should presume upon it. So Jonah got a second chance. Secondly, he received the same call. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it. For the most part, this second call is identical to the first call that he got. Same three verbs. Arise, go, proclaim. Same huge task, same huge place, same scary people. But there's one added detail here. One added detail, however, that was not present in chapter 1, verse 2, where he got his first call. Look at chapter 3, verse 2, in the second half of the verse. Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Which I'm going to tell you. Jonah was called to proclaim a message that God was going to give him. There are two factors involved here. It was God's message, because he was going to give it. And number two, Jonah didn't have it yet. Think about that. This is a crucial point. As Tony Evans accurately observes, God would not give Jonah more information until he was obedient to the information he had already received. A lot of us, he says, want God to do something new when we haven't addressed what he's given us in something old yet. Jesus strongly addressed that idea. When Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, he said, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Here's a simple principle to recall. God won't give you something more if you haven't yet done what he's already asked you to do. Jonah would have to go before God would tell him what to say. And that's scary, isn't it? I know, it would scare me to death. It's a test of simple obedience. Are you wondering why God isn't opening up doors of opportunity for you to do more for him? Let me ask you this question. Have you done the basic thing that he's already asked you to do? Some people want to have the whole plan laid out for them. But God doesn't always work that way. He wants us to trust him enough to step out in obedience and believe his word that he will provide what we need when we need it. God said he would give him the specific message he wanted to proclaim. And that's the next thing to notice. It was a simple, serious charge. Again, verse 2, second half of the verse Proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. There was only one thing God wanted Jonah to proclaim. God's message. And only God's message. Jonah wasn't at liberty to say what he wanted to say or to tell them what they wanted to hear. Get that in that verse? 
He was to simply preach the word God gave to him. And God's word alone. Now how relevant is that? How relevant is that? We're going to talk about that more in a minute. The question is, so what are you going to do now, Jonah? What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? You're going to go back to Tarshish? Back to Joppa? Go home? You're going to go look for another boat? Maybe a camel this time. But what's it going to be, Jonah? Thankfully, to his credit, the third stage happens. It's the man or woman of God goes. Obedience to God's word. Verses 3 and 4 here, chapter 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, that's the next stage of what happens here before a great spiritual awakening takes place. The grace of God comes, the word of God calls, and the man or woman of God goes. This, by the way, is the only place in the book where we find Jonah obeying the Lord. Interesting, huh? Four chapters, this is the only place. He rants, I mean, in the first, he runs in rebellion in the first chapter. He rants in resentment in the fourth chapter, which we're going to see next time. And in the second chapter, he resigns himself to pray. Otherwise, he knows he's going to perish. But here in chapter 3, Jonah finally obeys. I'm not sure that his attitude was any better at this point. Probably was a little bit better, having just come out of the fish. But I think God made himself so clear through the sea and through the fish, that whole ordeal, that Jonah got a little serious about his call. And as Ray Pritchard says, small obedience always beats great intentions. Jonah, at the very least, answered God's call in an act of obedience here. And in verse 2, God said, get up and go. And in verse 3, Jonah got up and went. You can see that right in the text. According to the word of the Lord. Now, it's helpful to see the distinct contrast between chapter 1, verse 3, and chapter 3, verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3 says this, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. You see those two things contrasting each other? Here's a little parenthetical statement here that is made as well. It says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Parenthetical statement. And that statement, I believe, is there to remind us just how immense this task is that Jonah was called to really was. And how great our task is when we're called of God to do anything. Needless to say, Nineveh was a huge metropolitan city. Population estimates have ranged somewhere around 600,000 people and up. It was exceedingly great. Now you imagine being called to that kind of a task. God says, okay you, you put your name in the blank. I want you to get on a bus and go to Manhattan. 
And I want you to proclaim the message that you don't know yet, but I'm going to tell you. Exceedingly great task. Imagine being called to that. Think about Jonah. He's been vomited up on dry land by a fish. You feel bad. You smell bad. I mean, even if he had cleaned himself up, you know how difficult it is to get the smell of fish off your hands, right? And you've got a pretty hard message to preach to a bunch of people that hate you, they don't know your God, and you have a foreign accent, and you look like death warmed over. The zombie apocalypse. Here's the deal, my friends. Before we can accomplish anything for God, we need to know that the task is too big for us, the people are too many for us, the message is too hard for us, and the journey is too long for us. It is. We need God's help. But the thing to remember is that this is God's city. This is God's city. In fact, I believe that that's the point of this parenthetical statement here. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. That phrase, exceedingly great city, can be literally translated this way. A city great to God. That's literally what the Hebrew says. A city great to God. In other words, it's God's city. It's God's city. He loves these people. He cares for these people. These people matter to him. And so it is with us. If we have a call, if you have a call that's been given by God to go to a people who are loved by God, to proclaim a message that's issued by God, then why in the world would you and I think that it all depends on us? That it's our skill, that it's, that it's our talent that's going to bring the results. How foolish is that? How inadequate we are. How naive we are. John Ortberg writes these words in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. He says, as a rule, the people whom we read about in Scripture who were called by God felt quite inadequate. Their initial response was never, yes, I'm up to that challenge. I think I can handle that. No, the first response to a God-sized calling is generally fear. Henry Blackaby writes, some people say God will never ask me to do something I can't do. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? I've come to the place, he says, in my life that if the assignment I sense God is giving me is something I know I can handle, I know it's probably not from God. The kind of assignments God gives in the Bible are always God-sized. They're always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate in us his nature, his strength, his provision, and his kindness to his people and to a watching world. This is the only way the world will come to know him. This doesn't mean that God calls us in a way that violates our raw material because when God calls, God gifts. Right? But he says everyone in Scripture who said yes to their calling had to pay a high price. And so will you and I. So will you and I. Verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and he said, Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So against all human odds, Jonah goes. 
God came through. God gave him the message to preach. Simple, straightforward, short, but not so sweet. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. God's mad. This is Jonah's message, right? God's mad and he's going to turn this place upside down. In Hebrew, it's five words, the whole message. Five words. Easy to memorize. You can preach it without notes. Five words. Listen, folks, never underestimate the power of a simple, serious message. Never. Now, is that the total message that Jonah preached? Well, we don't know. Commentators are divided on that. But it could be. This is all we have the information for. The fact is, a five-word message that originates with God is immeasurably more potent than a thousand-word tirade that originates with a man. Because if God's not in it, it ain't worth it. Listen, just because words are few doesn't mean they are insignificant. Right? We, of all people, should know that in this country by now. Twitter, all I need to say, right? Roseanne Barr's newly revived TV show just got abruptly canceled over an unconscionable tweet that she made. Talk about the power of an insignificant amount of words. World War II ended with the words unconditional surrender. Ever communicate this to your kids when they're acting on a line? Keep it up. Keep it up. How much does that communicate? It's three words, but it communicates volumes to your kids, doesn't it? Or how about this one? Wait till dad gets home. That's five words. Those are five powerful words that strike fear into the heart of any disobedient child and tends to bring about serious life change in them, right? It doesn't take many words to communicate a serious truth, especially when they're God's words. Notice Jonah was just simply went in and he spoke for God. He didn't put up a bouncy house and hand out cotton candy, slipping the gospel in under the wire if he got the opportunity. He didn't set up his social network of friends and contact people in the upper echelons of the Nineveh, Nineveh government before broaching the subject of spirituality. He didn't preach politics. He didn't preach gun control. He didn't preach immigration control. He simply gave them the message God gave to him, isn't that what God wants of us today? Isn't it? People who will speak for him. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Not exactly what churches are coaching their people to tell other people out in the world today. Now that's not always the message we need to convey in every case. I'm not saying that. But what if it is in some cases? And we're not saying it. Would you be willing to say it if God told you to say it? Reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, even to the Greek. 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, 
Paul writes, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Notice that this message contains both bad news and good news. You say, well, where's the good news in that message? There's bad news here and and, and good news. Here's the bad news. you got 40 days before God turns this place upside down. Here's the good news. You've got 40 days before God turns this place upside down. There's time to change, in other words. You see, the bad news included a gracious provision, didn't it? You got 40 days to turn things around. Let me ask you a question. What changes would you make to your life today if you knew you only had 40 days left to live? Tough one, isn't it? Could help getting out of the back of my mind as as I was preparing this message in two cases in my life. Over the last few years, I, one was my godson, who was in his, he was a young man in his 30s, who went into the hospital with uh, liver failure, and they told him he wasn't coming out. He was a 30-year-old guy that they told him he had a week to live, and he wasn't a believer. He was by the time he got out of that hospital, though. And a good friend of our, ours, Biotti, just a couple of weeks ago, she finds out on one day she's got cancer. Just over a week later, she's gone to be with the Lord. What kind of changes would you make? None of us know. These people had time to change. I love Tony Evans' perspective again. He said, when God takes the time to tell you about judgment, it's a painful word, but the fact that he told you about it means there's still a window of grace. My godson, he, he had that window of grace enough to process it, to hear the gospel one more time and make a profession that he believed in Jesus. And here is where the anatomy of a great awakening starts getting really good in this text. Because when the grace of God comes and the word of God calls and the man of God goes, the work of God happens. Look at verses 5 to 9. When the people of, then the people of Nineveh believed in God, yay, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word of God reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger, so we will not perish. I love this. Verse 5. Then the people. Then the people. Notice where the work of God started. 
Can you notice that? Where did it start? With the people. It started with the people. Now, I rarely get political, but let me do it right now for one second. Here's a principle that Christians need to remember and apply, Christians. Any national spiritual awakening, any moral behavioral change that is going, it's going to start in the hearts of the people, then it moves to the king. Not the other way around. You, that ought to be a lesson to us. Whatever you want to happen in the White House must begin to happen first in my house and in this house. Is that right? Because if it's not happening here, it ain't never going to happen there. Notice the flow of how God worked in Nineveh. The work of God happened first in the faith of the people. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast, put on sackcloth. From the greatest to the least, it brought spiritual change. They believed in God. And I want to alert us to an important contrast at this point. Back in chapter 1, in verse 13, in that case, in the case of the sailors, we saw that many others experienced the fallout of a prodigal's consequences. But here is the blessed flip side. Many others experience the benefits of a prodigal's obedience. Right? Because Jonah obeyed and went and did what God told him to do. All kinds of people got saved. They believed in God. And the word for believed here is the word aman, which means to take firm, make firm, take a firm stand in, to trust in, to confirm. You know what the word is? It's the word Amen. Amen. So it brought, brought spiritual change. It brought practical change. They called a fast. They were grieved. They were penitent. They were willing to deny themselves. And then it brought visible change. They put on sackcloth, worn as a symbol of humiliation and repentance. And it brought universal change. Look at it. From the greatest of them to the least. This was a public Posture of repentance. The whole city responded en masse. Solidarity, the, the awakening spread. I love the way the message paraphrases this verse. It says, The people of Nineveh listened and trusted God. They proclaimed a citywide fast and dressed in burlap to show their repentance. Everyone did it the rich and the poor, the famous and the obscure, the leaders and the followers. Can you imagine? One guy preaching a message and having all of Hollywood, all of New York, coast to coast, all of Washington, D.C., every person in the streets of Harlem, from the greatest to the least, from east to west, from north to south, these are the fruits of repentance. The visible re results of a life changed by the message of God's truth. This is what happens when people are awakened by the work of God's spirit, which brings an overwhelming abhorrence to personal sin and an overflowing understanding of the nearness and the goodness of God. It's as if they were saying, watch this. You and I should be able to tell people, watch this. Watch my life. You'll see if God's at work in it or not. That's one of the biggest complaints against the church, you know, by the non-churched. They're watching. They are watching. 
and they're not seeing a lot of differences. They see people characterized by affairs and inappropriate language and immodest dress and bad attitudes, not to mention questionable lifestyles. They see lying, cheating, gossip, pride, addictions, selfishness, entitlement, and judgmentalism, and yet we preach a Christ of truth, of humility, of selflessness, grace, and quiet dependence on God. Big disconnect. Can you say, watch this to the world around you? Could I say that? Would we even dare say that? What would people see? What would they say if we said that? Because you know what? In the Bible, there's no such thing as invisible fruit. No such thing as invisible fruit of the Spirit. One pastor said it incredibly well when he said, God must see the actions that you took, not the statements that you made. People of Nineveh took action here. And that work of God spread from the faith of the people to the heart of the king. Look at verse 6. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. The heart of the king. He changed his attitude. He changed his attire. He humbled himself, took off his robe, and clothed himself with sackcloth. He stripped himself of his pride, and he took on the posture of humiliation. He changed his appearance. He was willing to forsake all appearances. He placed himself right alongside the people sitting in the ashes, grieving over his sin on the same plane with every other sinner in the city. There were no heirs of importance, no position of status involved. He was broken and penitent just like everybody else was. From glory and splendor to humility and ashes, the work of God happened in the faith of the people, then in the heart of the king, which eventually brought something else. It brought a change in the laws of the land. Look at verse 7. He issued a proclamation and said, and it all lines out, So here's the principle. You change hearts first and then watch the laws change. God made this a national issue. The king made it a legal issue. He called for fasting in verse 7. He called for humbling in verse 8. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. He called for praying in the second half of verse 8. Let each man call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way. That word turn there is the keynote word in the Old Testament for repentance. This is the whole point of their petition, that they may turn toward God and away from their sin. It's a 180 degree shift from what they were used to. That's exactly what repentance means, by the way. The word translated turn is the keynote word here. You know how many times this word is used in the Old Testament? Over 1,000 times. And it means repentance. And then in verse 9, the king exhibits hope. Look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. That's hope. Here is the heart of a truly repentant attitude, my friends. 
And you know what's interesting here is you don't see any presumption of guaranteed pardon. No presumption. Who knows God may turn and relent. They're not presuming upon anything. There's no sense of entitlement here. It's hope beyond hope that God will show radical grace to a radically violent, wicked, sinful people. That's the posture of a truly repentant heart. That's the difference between the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus received. It's a complete realization that we don't deserve anything. We wait on God in earnest hope for his mercy to be poured out upon us, the chief of sinners. Like the Pharisee that prayed in the temple about all the good things that he had and the publican who beat his breasts and say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, the sinner. The attitude of true repentance isn't an attitude that takes a formulaic approach to a scripture like 2 Corinthians 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. How many times have you heard that quoted? But you know what? So sad about this is that so often this verse is misapplied and misappropriated. God is not a genie that if we stroke him the right way that he will respond in a certain way. While this scripture is indeed true as as it is applied in the right context, listen to this now, it is not a postulate to be claimed. It is a posture to be worn. When it comes to our sin and God's forgiveness, in the words of Pastor James McDonald, we cannot say what God says until we see what God sees. We cannot say what God says, you're forgiven. Until we see what God sees, and he needs to see a repentant attitude. Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. You know what we have a tendency to do as Christians? We have a tendency to slap 1 John 1, 9 on everything as if all we need to do is confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a true statement, isn't it? Absolutely true. Believe it with all my heart. But when I just throw that around, thinking, mistranslating it to mean that simply naming my sins is enough, it's wrong. The word confession actually means saying the same thing about something that God says. Saying the same thing about sin that God does. And that would mean repentance. That would mean I hate that sin that I'm talking about right now. Just like God does. Jesus preached repentance as much as John the Baptist did. It means to turn away from those sins. We cannot have our sin and have God forgive it too. You can't. 
Note the process in this whole text, this whole book of Jonah up to this point. Then the Lord, then Jonah, then the people, then the king, then God, right? Then God. When the grace of God comes and the word of God calls and the man of God goes, the work of God happens. And then finally, the will of God reigns. The will of God reigns. Look at verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Isn't that a great ending to a, to a passage? Notice it doesn't say when God heard their words. It says when God saw their deeds. Life change. Fruits of repentance. Because the repentance of man moves the heart of God. Amen? God relented. He didn't wipe them out. The New American Standard Bible properly chose the word relent here. God relented concerning the calamity, which he was going to do. And instead of using the word repent, because it's a different word. It's a different word than the other words that we see here that say turn. It's not the same word for repent, even though it has the same implications used previously in this text from people turning from their sin. However, this verse still begs the obvious question, does God ever change his mind? That's a whole other sermon, by the way. You're thinking, I thought God was immutable. I thought, I thought he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, this is a whole other sermon, sermon series. Unfortunately, using the word repent here to describe God's actions carries the thought of reversing a wrong decision. Isn't that what you think when you hear that word? But that's not really what the word means. However, where God is said to change his mind, it is an accommodation to us. God has not changed. The people have changed. The real inconsistency in God's character here would have been if God had allowed the people to continue in sin and had not sent judgment. That would be inconsistent. That's a very important distinction. Just... uh, One more passage of scripture here to look at. Jeremiah 18, beginning in verse 7. I think it explains it pretty well. At one moment, God says, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plan it. Plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. In other words, it's conditional. God's judgment and God's blessing here in the context of these verses is conditioned on the nation's obedience or disobedience. There is no contradiction in God's unchanging character. None. Well, let's wrap it up. This whole context of Jonah chapter 3 begins with Jonah getting spewed out of the whale's mouth, right? And it brings up the whole idea of what Jesus referred to in Matthew 
chapter 12, in verse 38, beginning in verse 38. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jesus didn't name many prophets. He didn't align himself with many prophets. I think only two. And Jonah's one of them, of all people. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, Jesus says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and they will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I want to close by paraphrasing something I heard this week. On the third day, on the third day, Jesus says, that's your sign. You want a sign? That's your sign. An empty grave is your sign. The other piece of the sign is that the men of Nineveh, the men of Nineveh, after Jonah rose, so to speak, from the belly of the sea monster, something happened in Nineveh. There was an upheaval spiritually both in the prophet and in the nation. A revival took place in Jonah and an awakening took place in Nineveh. The way you know that the Son of Man is alive, that the grave is empty, is not just because the Bible says so, but you're going to see a breakout in history. You're going to see men and women, young and old, flocking to Jesus Christ and people are going to testify in his name. They're going to testify. Will you testify? Because here's the deal, folks. Only when the sign of Jonah is seen in the church will the power of God be seen in the world. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the example that you give to us in Jonah, even though he was a prodigal on the run. In this case, he was a man that simply obeyed the message that you gave him to preach, and the whole nation was turned around. Lord, help us. Help us to understand that the power of salvation lies in your hand, not in our mouth. But you use our mouths, Lord God, to testify of Jesus who had power over the grave. And that is what people need to hear. So help us in whatever creative way that you determine that we should preach it, to preach it. And help us to see the opportunities and not to run from them. Overturn our fear, Lord God. Overturn my fear. Because we believe. But help our unbelief. May we be your people who are called by your name. And may we sincerely humble ourselves and pray and seek your face. Repent of our sin proclaim your glory through the ends of the earth until which day you return either to take us home or to make all things right we love you Jesus since your name we pray
Amen.